Our reading this evening is 1 Timothy and chapter 2. 1 Timothy and chapter 2. We commence at verse 1. I exhort therefore that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And as ever we trust that the Lord will add his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. Amen. Well, this evening we are continuing studying the first letter of Paul to Timothy. And eventually we shall, God willing, also study 2 Timothy and Titus. These three epistles, as I've mentioned before, are often referred to as the pastoral epistles. And this may be not only because they are both addressed to two early Christian pastors, but also perhaps because they give us guidance as to both the qualifications and the responsibilities of those who are called to lead churches. Now, both Timothy and Titus, as I mentioned before, were Paul's sons in the faith, and both of them had pastoral responsibility. Timothy at Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. And when Paul wrote to them, he did so with the intention of helping them to ensure that what took place in the churches for which they were responsible would be right and pleasing in God's sight. That should be the aim of every fellowship, to do that which is right and pleasing in God's sight. And in our studies in 
1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, we shall see practical information conveyed by these epistles on a variety of subjects. But these epistles do not confine themselves solely to practical matters. They also convey vital doctrinal truths about the scriptures, about salvation, and about the Saviour. So I trust that our studies in these epistles will help us all to serve God in whatever capacity we may find ourselves in our churches. In our last study a month ago, we considered how important it was for believers to pray for all types of people, not just for our nearest and dearest. And we have to pray for all classes of men because God wants people from all walks of life to be saved. And Christ gave his life as a ransom for men and women and boys and girls from all walks of life. We know that only the elect will be saved, but we do not know who the elect are. And thus there should be no class of people for whom we feel that we cannot pray. For we do not know whom the Lord might save. And all our evangelism should be based on that premise also. It's our privilege to plant and to order, but it's the Lord's prerogative alone to give the increase. And we are able to say with absolute confidence to any unbeliever that if they come to the Lord Jesus Christ in true repentance, then they will be accepted by him. He will in no wise turn them away and all their sins will be blotted out. This evening we shall be considering the remaining half of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and we shall be considering what it has to say to us about the role of women in the church. And this is a very controversial issue in our generation. And whatever view we hold, we must be very careful to ensure that it accords with the Scripture. The Scripture must be the prevailing authority in all our thinking, about all things, since far too many people, unfortunately even some unbelievers, some believers rather, allow their opinions to be influenced by the arguments of the ungodly by the opinion of men, rather than by the Word of God. However, before we consider what God the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write regarding the role of women, we need firstly to consider something that he wrote for men. Having stressed the importance of prayer for all classes of people, he then proceeds to give the church instructions as to how men are to pray whenever they lead public, corporate worship. Paul wrote this, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The phrase everywhere appears four times in Paul's epistles and on each occasion he is referring to the official assembly of the church. Only men are to act as leaders when both men and women meet for corporate worship and only they are to lead in prayer, including prayer for those yet unsaved during 
such services. It's been argued that what Paul is teaching here contradicts his teaching elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 5, where he says that women praying or prophesying should have their heads covered. But he qualifies that commission in 1 Corinthians 14 and verses 34 and 35, which read thus. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. And from these verses in 1 Corinthians, we see that it is permitted for women both to train and to prophesy, but not in corporate worship services. It is perfectly in order for ladies to teach other ladies and children, and we shall consider this in greater detail when we get to verse 12 at the passage that we're looking at this evening. So only men are to lead in prayer in the corporate worship services. But what about those words, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting? Well, you know, it was the Jewish custom to pray with uplifted hands, which we can see from various Old Testament scriptures. For example, if you turn to 1 Kings 8, verse 22, you'll see that King Solomon prayed with uplifted hands at the dedication of the temple. That's 1 Kings 8, 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands towards heaven. Then if you were to turn to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 15, you'll find there the following verse, Isaiah 1 verse 15. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And this verse from Isaiah is of particular relevance when considering verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, our study passage this evening. Now, the custom of praying with uplifted hands was adopted by the early church, and this is evidenced by some murals that have been found in catacombs. But you know, Paul's emphasis is not on posture. It's on the holiness of the hands of those who are praying. Isaiah wrote of how God refused to hear the prayers of some who prayed with uplifted hands since those hands were bloodstained. And that similarly, men who lead in prayer in the church must be of exemplary character themselves, not prone to wrath and doubting or disputing, since anger will of necessity affect prayer adversely, as well as a spirit of contention. Well, having set down guidelines for the conduct of men in corporate worship services, Paul next, next sets out some guidelines for that of women. And he starts by saying this, In like manner also that women adore themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, 
Not with grey hair or gold or pearls or costly When women attend church services, their motive should primarily be to worship the Lord and not to draw undue attention to themselves. You know, Satan will use all manner of devices to hinder worship. And it's not appropriate for women to come to church adorned in such a way as to cause distraction. What might be acceptable at other times, such as weddings, is unacceptable in church meetings. Ladies are to attend church meetings in modest apparel with decency and propriety. Now, I know of a sad situation where the pastor's own wife used to come to church dressed up to the lions. I think she may have been one of those fur boroughs around there. Anyway, she came dressed up to the the nice, and thus she, who should be setting an example for the rest of the ladies in the church, was doing the very opposite. Shame faced in women refers to modesty laced with humility. A godly woman would feel bad. She might feel ashamed if she felt that she had been guilty of distracting anyone from worshipping God by her attire or her demeanour. And sobriety conveys a sense of discretion and self-control, whereby godly women endeavour not to impassion others nor become impassioned themselves. What about ladies' hairstyles? Elaborate hairstyles are likely to be noticed, which is just what Paul is warning against. Hair which is intricately groided or plaited attracts attention and can be a distraction. As you will be aware, the question of head coverings for ladies in church is a contentious issue, but it has to be said that those ladies who cover their heads will reduce the prospect of their hairstyle causing a distraction. Mm. Of course, it goes without saying that any head covering should also be such as not to attract undue attention. So I would say, please, no fascinators <laughs> in church or such like. Now what about the wearing of gold and pearls, jewellery of any sort? Well, can we not say that anything at all that is worn to church must not attract attention? Jewellery of itself isn't sinful, as we can see clearly from the scriptures. But if it's worn to church with a view to, shall we say, flaunting one's wealth, or with a view to drawing attention to oneself, then this would be wholly inappropriate, as would be the wearing of costlier rain. Mm. Now, many of us feel that it's right for us to wear our best clothes on the Lord's Day. And that's where we get the term, do we not? Sunday best. Mm. Consequently, it may be that what we wear on Sunday are the costliest clothes that we own. Someone once said that if they were going to meet the sovereign, then they'd wear their best clothes. So why would they do the same when they waited upon the King of Glory in his own house? Mm. But surely what Paul is referring to when he talks here of costly array is the wearing by women in church of clothing which will attract undue attention because of its costliness. Mm. Now, you know, Paul wasn't the only apostle who felt it necessary to give the church guidelines as to how women should adorn themselves. The Apostle Peter wrote these words as we find them recorded 
in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. That's 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. Peter wrote this about the men. Whose adorning, let it not be their outward adorning, of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold, and or putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Mm -hmm. And this ties in with what Paul goes on to write to Timothy. He wrote that women should adorn themselves, and I quote, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. So we see from that combination of scripture that any woman who desires to be a godly woman will cultivate a meek and quiet spirit and will give testimony of her willingness to serve God by what she does rather than by what she wears. Now, you will have noticed that I spoke of cultivating, cultivating a meek and quiet spirit and I used that particular word because it highlights how meekness and quietness of spirit do not come easily to what we might say modern women. These qualities have to be cultivated, they have to be worked at. But any lady who does struggle in that particular area can be encouraged by remembering what the scripture says. A meek and quiet spirit is in the sight of God of great price. What about good works? And surely Paul is speaking here not just of works of charity, but of good behaviour generally. Good works become a person. When we speak of clothes becoming a person, we mean that the person looks nice in them, that they are seemly. And one commentator said this, good works are like good clothes. They do not make persons, men and women, but they adorn them as such. So good works. They do not make men and women Christians or believers, but they adorn them as such. They are ornaments to their persons and to their profession and to the gospel they profess. But now we come to the verses in our study this evening which are the subject of so much discussion and disagreement nowadays. Paul wrote these words. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And Paul was giving guidelines here about what was to be permitted in corporate worship services. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 and 35, you'll find there very similar guidelines. That's 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 35. To the believers of Corinth, Paul wrote these words. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the Lord. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. And looking at this combination of scripture, we see that the apostle is saying that 
When in corporate worship services, women are to be learners and not teachers. They are to sit under the ministry of the Word to learn more of the gospel of God's grace and also how they themselves might maintain good works. They are to be quiet and on no account seek to teach the congregation. Perhaps, as is the case in some fellowships, under the precept, pretext of having received a word from the Lord or under the pretext of having been, so they say, prompted by the Holy Spirit to rise and to speak. Furthermore, if any woman encounters anything during the public ministry of God's Word which causes them difficulty in their not understanding something, or perhaps even objecting to or disagreeing to something that they have heard, then they ought not to raise any such matters in the assembly in the first place, but ask their own husbands when they get home. And thus they will behave with all subjection, both to those who minister God's word and to their own husbands. Now it has to be said that obeying this teaching isn't necessarily as straightforward as we might wish. For example, what do widows or unmarried women do when they don't understand something that has been taught? Or when they feel that something incorrect has been taught? Well, we have to remember that what we have before us this evening are general guidelines to be followed wherever possible. A young unmarried woman will usually be able to ask her father at home about something if he's a believer, but if not, it wouldn't be out of place for her to approach a church elder for help. And this may be the case for widows also. But what about instances where a woman has greater spiritual understanding than her husband, which is not such a rare occurrence as some might like to believe. I know of some women who are much more knowledgeable than their believing husbands and also much more spiritual. So what are they to do? How are they to behave? Well, I think you may have heard of a man called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's gone to be with the Lord now. He wrote some very good things and he, he mentioned in one of his books about the situation that he was in, I think it was in Wales, and he'd gone to um, stay with the family, uh, perhaps to have um, uh, fellowship with them, uh, it may have been to have lunch with them, but he noticed uh, that uh, the wife in the family was obviously much more spiritually aware than her husband, and also, I think, more academically aware. And he noticed that this lady acted in such a way that she helped her husband. She didn't in any way try to belittle or to undermine her husband, but she so conducted herself that she actually helped her husband. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones felt this was a wonderful witness. Mm -hmm. So such people, such ladies, could act both wisely and discreetly. They can find ways of helping their husbands without making their husbands feel inadequate. Any wife who did this would be honouring both the Lord and her husband, and ought to be highly commended. Mm -hmm. Now it has to be made crystal clear that it's the Lord himself who doesn't want women to usurp authority over men. That's because it's God the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to set down these guidelines for us, and also the Apostle Peter. Now some people have argued and do argue 
that Paul was a misogynist, that he had a bias against women, and that it isn't necessary for them to be bound by teaching which they feel is based on someone's personal prejudice. But this is the really important thing to remember. Paul was speaking and writing on God's behalf. Mm -hmm. He was God's man. He was writing as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit so to do, as were all those inspired of God in their writings. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned earlier, it's perfectly in order for ladies to teach other ladies at ladies' meetings or to teach children in Sunday school, at home, or in evangelistic children's work. But they are not to attempt to teach men in corporate worship services. Now the question arises, why is it that there has been such a departure in our churches from biblical teaching? Why is it that there are lady ministers in, say for example, the Church of England and other denominations? Why is it that some women are allowed to minister in many charismatic assemblies? Well, I believe that there may be two main reasons for this sad state of affairs, albeit we really need to understand that Satan is always behind anything that is done in opposition mm -hmm. to what is laid down in the scripture. And the first reason is the dissatisfaction of some women with the role ordained for them by God. Now we know from the scriptures that Christian men and women are equal in the sight of God with regard to their standing in him as far as salvation is concerned. Paul wrote these words to the Galatians. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There is an equality as regards salvation. But, nonetheless, the Lord has decreed that men and women are to fulfill different roles in life. In corporate worship services, God has decreed that it's only men who are to lead in prayer and to teach the assembled church. It's not the place of women to do this, no matter how spiritual or knowledgeable they may be. Perhaps there may be some ladies who might be able to preach a more spiritually uplifting sermon than many sermons delivered by some men, but that's not the point at issue here. The Lord has decreed that women are to be subject to their own husbands and to be subject to the teaching of those men called of God to preach under whose ministry they sit. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But it's because some women are unwilling to be so subject that problems have arisen. Mm. The second main reason, in my opinion, for women seeking to be ordained for the ministry is a lack of male candidates. Mm. It's a shame on men that mm. women are prepared to fill the vacancies that should have been filled by men. Mm. And we see this problem elsewhere in Christian service. For example, there have been many lady missionaries who have gone to serve the Lord in foreign lands in the absence of sufficient male volunteers. They've gone out unaccompanied when surely it must have been better for married couples to have been sent or 
perhaps single men. Mm. Now, I'm not in any way whatsoever seeking to disparage the efforts of godly women who have sacrificed much to serve God overseas. But I'm just pointing out that this wasn't necessarily God's best. Too few men being willing to serve the Lord overseas has led to too many single women going instead. And too few men being willing to answer a call to the ministry has led to ministerial vacancies being filled by ladies. Now some may feel that what's happening in our country is God's judgment on the land. But it isn't a question of men not being willing to respond to a call to the ministry, but that God isn't calling many men into the ministry. And there may be some truth in this, particularly when we consider the general apostasy of the established church in our land. Mm -hmm. However, this is no reason for women to do that which the Lord specifically forbids. Now, why is it that women should be expected to fulfill a role that is subordinate to men? Well, Paul tells us why. He wrote this. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. We read, do we not, in the book of Genesis, the account of the creation of the first woman and the account of how she was subsequently deceived by the serpent, by the devil. And it's to these episodes that Paul now refers to explain why it is that women are ever to be subject to their own husbands. He wrote this, Adam was first formed, then Eve showing us that it wasn't primarily as a result of Eve's part in the fall that women are to be subject to their husbands, but that it follows the divine order of creation. The man first, then the woman. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9, Paul wrote this, The man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. God's purpose in creating Eve from Adam's rib was so that she could be a helpmeet to him, a helpmeet for him. Prior to Eve's creation, Adam was alone, and no suitable helpmeet was found for him, in, for him amongst those many animals that were created. So Eve was created as the ideal helpmate for Adam. And it's my opinion, my honest opinion, that if every married woman saw that her principal role in life was to be a helpmate for her husband, then this would change the dynamics of many marriages and again, in my opinion, would lead to improved relationships. Now, I have to make it very clear that this doesn't in any way mean that wives are to be students, that they are to be grovelingly subservient, but it does mean that they will only know true fulfilment in their marriage if they are willing to undertake the role that God intends for them. God wants wives to support their husbands. He doesn't want them to supplant their husbands. 
So we see that the primary reason for wives to be in subjection to their own husbands is because this is what God intended from the very beginning. But do not the circumstances of the fall evidence the wisdom of that choice of God? Since we read this, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. God intended Eve to be a helpmate for Adam, but we see that she influenced her husband in a way that was to adversely affect all mankind. Well, we know from the account of the fall, which, uh, which we read in the book of Genesis, that the devil got at Adam through his wife. It was only Eve who was deceived by Satan. Adam was not. But Adam then allowed himself to be persuaded by his wife to partake of the forbidden fruit. Adam was held accountable by God, but you will note that Eve received her punishment from God first. And when Adam received his punishment, God said it was because of this, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. If a wife wants to be a true helpmeet to her husband, then Will she not strive to ensure that whatever she asks of him or whatever she suggests to him is something that's acceptable in God's sight and will not lead her husband to sin? Now, what about these words? The woman being deceived was in the transgression, notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Well, firstly, we need to see that womankind in general is spoken of here, Eve and all her female descendants. And secondly, we need to understand that being saved in childbearing is not a reference to the salvation of the soul as a consequence of bearing children. We need to bear in mind the thrust of Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 2, namely that women are to be content to fulfill the role that God intended them to fulfill. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, we clearly see a woman's role defined by God as being that of a wife and a mother. The scripture says this, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And so we see that this is what God wants women to be, generally speaking, wives and mothers, and that they are to be subject to their husbands. Now we know that there are exceptions to this rule, inasmuch as God has a plan that all women will be wives and mothers. But this will be the norm. And it's by women accepting this role that they will fulfill their true destiny, not by seeking to do that which God has ordained as a man's work. A godly woman, a woman who is truly saved, will evidence that fact by her willingness to conform to God's general plan for women. Some commentators have offered alternative explanations as to how women as the scripture says, might be saved in childbearing. One common thought is that it was through childbearing that the Lord Jesus came into the world. 
he was born of a woman. And thus salvation came through that childbirth. Another thought is that although a woman was the cause of sin entering the world, women can redeem themselves by raising their children in a godly fashion. As I have said, it seems to me that women who are truly saved, whatever that's that fact, by their willingness to conform to God's general plan for women, and they will continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. They will be unswerving in their determination to accept the role that has been assigned to them by God. And they will be adorned with those qualities prized both by God and by godly husbands, faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Well, having reached the end of our study in 1 Timothy this evening, I trust that we have a better understanding of what the Lord requires of Christian women and what he doesn't want. But I also trust that any husband won't go home and take their wife to task for any failings on their part. There's much to commend studying the scriptures in a consecutive manner. And it so happens that the passage that we have studied this evening is primarily to do with the role of women. There are many other scriptures that deal with the role of men as leaders as husbands and fathers, and I'm sure that we men all fall short of what God requires of us. As we can see from the first epistle of Peter, husbands are to dwell with their wives, and I quote, according to knowledge, giving honour unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. If a husband expects his wife to be subject to him, then he should make sure that he loves her and that he treats her with respect. Mm. Now, we must rely primarily on the scriptures to convince women of that which is right in God's sight, that they might obey willingly rather than by coercion. Mm. Biblical principles should apply in every generation. They do not change with the passage of time. We all need to believe that God's way is best in every area of our lives. And should not our prayer be that the Lord will enable us to be obedient and faithful in whatsoever role he has ordained for each of us. Amen. Amen.